Love you, big dog. Hey, Seth, come back here and take this. Thank you. God bless you. Seth and I, um, our, our best friend, Zach, he's a missionary in Ecuador. And whenever he does something like that, he won't say, God bless you. He'll say, God bless me. So that's usually what I say. But I was being holy in that moment. All right, Colossians. We're starting Colossians chapter 3 today. You know, when you build, uh, preachers build sermon series schedules. And they say when the new year starts, you should be starting a new sermon series. And I say, get over it. We're still going to be in Colossians because I make the rules. Make my own rules. So, Father, we come to your word today with an expectancy, a reverence. We ask that you would move in this house, that you would breathe upon this place. Lord, we open our hearts to hear all that you have to say. And, Lord, we pray again that you make us better disciples of Jesus when we leave this place, that this community would feel the full brunt of a spirit-filled church who has lived selflessly for the gospel of Christ. So use us, God, as a tool in your hand. Use us, Lord, in this harvest. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about the the value of reading old books. Remember C.S. Lewis said that if you read a new book, you should immediately read an old book because all new books are still on trial. That the old books that have lasted for generations, they've been tested by the minds of the church. Well, and so I, I was reading this week from John Owen, who was probably the leading Puritan. Um, John Owen, he worked at Oxford, um, so it was a, and he had, had his hand in politics a bit, um, and he died in the 1650s. And John Owen's book, On the Mortification of Sin, um, it can be a hard read, but it was a really influential read in my life in my younger years. But in particular, I was reading his book, um, which I had read before, but on communion with God, book on communion with God. The word communion, it's derived from Latin roots, which means common union. And now the uh, theological concept of union, the Puritans just had a heyday with. The, the theological concept of union is pervasive in the New Testament. It's literally everywhere. Now, over the last several years, the church has thought a lot about soteriology, um, or particularly we've thought a lot about justification. So we're, we're, we're forgiven the moment we're declared righteous, the moment we come to Jesus. And, and that is beautiful and, and important, but we haven't thought a lot about union. And the Puritans would say that justification, sanctification, all of our salvation process is founded upon the theological concept of union. Now, union is the concept of being united with Christ. It's everywhere in the New Testament where we get the phrases, in, I am any man in Christ is a new creation. We haven't thought much about what Paul means when he says that some are some men are in Christ. And anytime the New Testament uses the word with, you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so the, there's a pervasive New Testament theme, which is that the church is in a mystical, spiritual way, united to Christ. And, and now... Union would be the, the apex of the entire biblical narrative. We start with um, the garden and we end with marriage ceremony um, in the new heavenly city, the, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why is marriage, right? Like 
it's not good for a man to be alone. And so Adam's put to sleep, and from his rib is made a woman who would be his, from his side, right? There would be a partner formed who would live life with him. And then when the two come into marital union, the two become one. And so obviously that imagery shakes out on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus is, the church has always loved this, where Jesus' side is pierced the same place where Eve was drawn from Adam. The church now pours from the side of Christ Jesus. And, and think of the imagery of two becoming one. There's this, there's this oneness that takes place in marital union. And, and, and all of the scripture is pointing to the fact that Christ, from eternity past, has purchased for himself. He has planned to redeem a particular people for himself that he will call his bride. And so I'm not, I'm not big on the Song of Solomon being like exact allegorical imagery of Christ and his church because the Song of Solomon gets uh, pretty like PG-13 real quick. Um, but again, all of church history has pointed to the fact that even in this kind of romance we find in the Song of Solomon, it's imagery that causes us to look forward to the day when we become Christ Jesus' bride. One with Him. We are in Him and with Him. We are united to Him. And we find in Scripture that that was always God's plan. And not only was it always God's plan, but it makes Christ and the, and the Father and the Spirit exceedingly glad. He is glad to have us one with Him. Now let me read to you what Owen wrote in his book on communion with God. Owen wrote, Believers are a great delight to Christ. The day of his wedding, of taking poor sinful souls into his loving care, is the day of the gladness of his heart. John the Baptist was but a friend of the bridegroom who stood and heard his voice when Christ was taking his bride to himself, and he rejoiced greatly. How much more then must be the joy and the gladness of the bridegroom? If the, if the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the day of the marriage celebration, how much more does the groom rejoice? And so the prophet Zephaniah tells us, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, from creation, God fashioned this, this, this union between one man and one woman where the two become one flesh and build a family and home together where they share all things in common and love each other fully. This is one of the reasons we need to defend traditional Christian marriage because that union is a prophetic image. It is a shadow of what Christ's, Christ's church will have with Christ. So, so in the same way that my wife belongs to me, and I belong to her, and we share all things in common. I know that very well. We had to buy her a new car yesterday, so who's paying for that? I know it very well. We hold all things in common. It's my job to provide for her, to love for her, to care for her. In the same way, literally, I belong to Christ. I am His. Not only, And I'm, I'm not His as if I'm some kind of pitiful bride that he that he kind of oh okay, I guess I'll take you no the scripture says that with gladness of heart and joy and great zeal he celebrates receiving his bride and the two become one there's a there's a union do you guys understand that concept structure a union that takes place 
Now, our passage today, as we turn to Colossians chapter 3, is a classic text concerning union. This is one of the passages of Scripture that drives home the concept of union like no other. And to be honest with you, that there are some passages of Scripture that scare me because they're holy. And I, I'm not sure that I have the, the spiritual maturity or the intellectual capacity to properly present these holy themes to you. I feel like it's uh, too holy to fall off my profane lips this morning. And so this, this is a high theology day, a high scriptural theme. I want you to lean in and pay attention because it's incredibly central to all that Paul believed. Now, remember again that when we turn to the Colossian church, they're dealing with what's known in theological camps as the Colossian heresy. Most likely some form of Gnosticism or, or some kind of syncretistic movement, which essentially says to the Christians at Colossae, you do not have all that you could have if you would follow us. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, and I think he's really right about this, the, 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 the theme, the key word of the book of Colossians seems to be fullness. Um, and so Paul will even use the word that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. The, the, the thematic word is fullness. And it seems that the heretical false teachers are saying to the Colossian church, if you want real spiritual fullness, then follow us. What you have is good, but you don't have the full thing. You don't have the, the full spiritual reality. Now, as Christians, you know and I know that there are times in your Christian life where you feel tired. There are times in your Christian life where you think, I, I'm experiencing spiritual lack. You know, you ever say to the Lord, you said that if I come to you, I'll never thirst again. And in a way, I've never thirsted again. But then there are some days where I feel dry. I'm not thirsted for the things of this world to fill me. No, I thirst for the Spirit to, to lead me and to empower me. There, there are days where we feel, eh, I'm missing something. And the false teachers slip in on those days. And they say, if you are going to really have the fullness, you need to turn to our teaching. So Paul is speaking to them in this hour. When they're feeling weak and tired and the false teachers are saying, you don't have fullness. And, and Paul is saying, don't bite. Don't bite. Don't chase this teaching. Rather, dig down into your union. When you experience lack and want in your spiritual life, it is always because you haven't lived fully in the reality of your union with Christ. He bought you and purchased you and redeemed you fully on the cross of Calvary. There's no other work to be done. All there is is reality to be experienced as we dig down into what it means to be in Christ, to be with Christ. Now, let's read that passage, and we'll, I'll do my best to explore these ideas with you, um, knowing again that I can't possibly communicate perfectly what this theology communicates, but um, we'll do our best. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds are things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, 
appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. Now, the temptation when we approach this text is to jump straight to the application and to talk about what it means to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on heavenly things. Now, that is the application, and we do need to uncover and unpack all that that means. But first, let's, let's take a minute to, to, to realize the foundation, the theological framework, the doctrine that Paul is building that house from when he says, If then you have been raised with Christ... If then you have been raised with Christ. Remember again that Paul said in chapter 2 that in the waters of baptism you were buried with Christ. Now he's saying that we've been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ. We, we need to, to try to consider, what, is, what does Paul mean? What does he mean by, if then you have been raised with Christ? What does he mean when he says, you were buried in the waters of baptism with Christ, and you were raised with Christ? Does, does he mean in some allegorical sense that we've been raised with Christ? Does he mean, as many would tell you, that, that because of Jesus, now you have some kind of fresh start, new start, because you are in some way, you kind of allegorically are raised with Christ? Or does he mean that you are literally raised with Christ? What we need to recognize is that for Paul, he's not speaking in allegory here, he's speaking in actualities. That when you were buried in the waters of baptism, he doesn't just mean, look, you went down in baptism, that's kind of like being put in the tomb. Kind of like that, isn't that nice? No, he means in a very real way, your spirit is tied to the Spirit of Christ, is knit to the Spirit of Christ. And when when Jesus goes down into the tomb, we went down, we went into that tomb with him. And when Jesus stood up from the grave, I stood up with him and in him. Not not allegorically, literally. And, And then he's going to argue that when Christ ascended to the right hand of God. He's going to say, if then you have been buried with Christ, and if then you have been raised with Christ, united with Christ in His resurrection, experience new life in that resurrection... Right In the same way that Christ breathed new air, I've breathed new air because of the Spirit and my, my being born again. If I've been raised with Christ, that now then does my union with Christ separate and fracture when He ascends to the Father and sits down at the right hand of God? So spiritually speaking, I've went down with Him in the waters of baptism. I've raised with Him in newness of life. Now does He go sit at the right hand of God and I'm left and our union has been fractured? And Paul would argue, no. When, when Christ ascended to the right hand of God, in, in mystical union, I've ascended to the right hand of God. And when Christ sat down at the right hand of God, now, Paul will say, you are seated in Ephesians. You are seated now at the right hand of God. Why? Because I have union with Him. And that union didn't break at the resurrection. 
literally I was buried with him and my old existence died. And literally I was raised with him and given new life and new breath. And literally I am united with Christ now in this moment as he sits at the right hand of God. My spirit is tied to him. I am in a very real way also seated now in heavenly places. You say, Caleb, no, I see you. You're about six to a little overweight and ugly. And I say, you don't see me because my true life is hidden with Christ in God. You say, Caleb, I know where you live. No, you don't know where I live. You can say, I know what you like. No, you don't. My true life is hidden with Christ in God, seated at the right hand of God. Now, of course, I live this life in this hunky chunk of flesh. I get it that God, for some reason, gave me, like, the shape of Mr. Potato Head, right? I know that. I'm aware, okay? I walk around in this potato head thing, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I go to the car lot to get my wife a new car because her doors of her van literally fell off. Like, that's how hard we drove that thing. And I, and I take my kids yesterday. Uh, they were in the Nutcracker, and it was beautiful. And I, and I do all the things that people do. But union, the concept of union means, um, I'm not trying to make this about me, but the only way I know how to express it is to talk about me. Is, is as I'm sitting in the, in, the, in the Nutcracker last night, I sit in the back because I don't like crowds. I have a bit of, you know, I, you guys know that. I'm a little bit um, introverted. I'm sitting in the back with my legs crossed, watching my daughters and going, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for life. And I thank you for the gift that these kids are. And I thank you, God, for, for the cross and being born again because I don't deserve this life that you blessed me with. And where I was headed was death and destruction. And you turned and you redeemed. And so, I mean, full, you see, what you see is, 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 is Mr. Potato Head with his legs crossed watching a play. But what, 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 I, what I know is a hidden communion with Christ Jesus as I watch a play. And, and what you see is a kid walking around in his cowboy boots around the car lot looking kind of dumb. But what, what, I, what I experience is intimate conversation with the Father. I'm really not that concerned with the way I look. I know that God just wired me that way. I don't, my wife's like, are you going to wear that today? I'm like, whatever. I'm not um, um, my hidden life is, is a life in which Every day, I walk with him and talk with him and know him. And yes, in a way, I live in this world that we all live in, and I high-five people with my hands. You know, I touch things. And, but but, but that, is, that is not where my, my spiritual life is. I'm hidden with Christ in God. And all of your Christian life is learning to develop this hidden with Christ in God relationship where I commune with him and talk with him and, and know his voice and hear his nearness secretly, of course. Now, the religious temptation is to live loud and big and is to walk around and tell everyone, look how spiritual I am. I'm very, very skeptical of people who live loud spiritual lives because I don't find it, I don't know of the Holy Spirit, I don't know of Christ, this kind of boastful spirituality. The more I walk with Him and know Him, what I know is this kind of, eager, this kind of secret, still conversation and sweetness that I have with God. I, I know an, an intimate, humble, 
And, and when, when I have moments where, where I act out arrogance, what, what I feel in the inner secret place where I live life with God, what I feel is called conviction. And so when people live these loud spiritual lives, look how anointed I am. I'm very skeptical of that. And so the, the point of the text is not that we should all try to put on display how spiritual we are. The point of the text is when you feel like you lack fullness, you need to retreat to your hidden life with Christ in God, where I am now seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. I have full access to the Father. He's seated right next to me, so I whisper and He hears every word that I say. I know Him fully on the basis of Jesus' blood, not on the basis of my own works, but I am seated. I learned to live seated with God. Now, of course, the, the, the kind of synchronistic Gnostics who are coming at the Christian church at Colossae with false teaching, of course they have to tell them to do something. All false teaching is essentially workspace that says you need to jump higher, you need to scratch more, you need to crawl harder. But in a very real way, the true gospel says you are already seated. And seated, watch my knee, will found this beautifully. Seated means I'm in a posture of rest. All has been done. My feet are up as I rest in Christ because of what he's done. And when I lack, when I feel want, I only need to learn to rest in him again, to commune with him again. Yes, at times to repent, to acknowledge conviction, and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to move. And I have, you, you need, you must learn to live a secret hidden life with God. You say, practically speaking, Caleb, what does that look like? Does that look like journaling? For some of you, that may look like journaling. It does look like being in the scriptures every day, for sure. But there are even seasons in my hidden life with God. Sometimes I just walk and just talk with Him. And sometimes it's journaling, and sometimes it's reading like a million books because I feel like His Spirit's on them. And sometimes every book I pick up deserves to be in the toilet. There should be a publisher called the Toilet Publisher where all of those books go. So I know if it's got the toilet stamp on the back, don't read it. Just wasted my money and time. I don't know. I can't, I can't articulate perfectly what the hidden life with Christ looks like. I can't five-point it for you. I know that's what we like. But it looks like learning to know Him, to focus on Him. Now, when he says, seek the things that are above, and to put your mind on the things that are above, the seek there, sometimes it's translated as, put your heart on the things that are above, or, or allow your heart to pursue what's happening in heaven. Allow your heart to pursue heavenly realities. I'm not using notes today, so forgive me if my thoughts aren't in logical order. Um, I have notes, I'm just like not using them. When Paul says, you are now, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, he will appear with you. Paul is, is saying um, that when Christ returns, right? We don't see Christ with our eyes now. Christ will not return without his bride. The reformers like to say this, that 
God, you have to, the reformers were very particular in their language, so you need to pay attention to the particulars of what's being said here. That God considers, considers himself incomplete without us. God is not incomplete without us. He is perfectly and totally whole in and of himself. But he considers himself lacking when his bride is not along his side. Calvin said that um, our Lord Jesus Christ and even God his Father account themselves imperfect unless we are joined to him. As if a father should say, my house seems empty to me when I do not see my children in it. A husband will say, I seem to be only half a man when my wife is not with me. After that same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and making us all one in himself. Now again, Calvin was very particular about his language. He's not saying that God is in lack, but he is saying that God's father heart does not like being an empty nester. That that Jesus' groom's heart does not like a bachelor pad. But, but the Father and the Son send the Spirit to draw to himself children and a bride. And then Paul says this, this line, again, this is a holy line of Scripture, where Paul says that when Christ returns, he will not return without us. That Christ goes nowhere. So, so follow the line of logic, right? I was buried with him in the waters of baptism. I was raised with him into resurrection life. I was ascended with him and sat down. I am now seated with him in heavenly places. So on the day when he gets up from his throne and returns to the earth to bring full redemption, of course, I'll go with him. I'll be at his side. And then my hidden life with Christ in God will be revealed. And so C.S. Lewis liked to say that if we, if we saw each other the way that we will see each other on the last day, we would be tempted to fall down and worship. Of course we wouldn't. But, but the, the point being that what you see of me today is not what you will see of me then. You don't know my hidden life in Christ today, and I don't know your hidden life in Christ today, but there is a day coming in which my hidden life with Christ in God will be revealed. There is a day of exposure coming. When Christ returns, I will come on the clouds of heaven with him. And the world, all those who have denied Jesus, spit in our face, mocked us, will also see what is to be revealed on that day. That is a theological concept of union that is, again, pervasive all over the New Testament. In the same way that a, that a, that a, a, a groom and a bride, their, their hearts were knit together in one. The two become one. I am now united with Christ. I've been buried with him in the waters of baptism, so I've died. My old sin nature, my old desires, my old wants and wishes, they all died in the waters of baptism. In the same way that Jesus got up, he breathed again, I too have new breath in the Spirit. I have a new state of existence. And when Christ ascended to the right hand of God and sat down in the Father's presence, I sat down with him. I can't articulate perfectly what that means. It just means that when I say Father, He says, yes, Son. I am totally in His presence now. I live life in His presence. 
So then Jesus is, uh, Paul is now saying to the Colossian church, these false teachers want to tell you that you don't have fullness. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Now you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. When words fall from your lips, the Father hears. When you struggle and when you're tired, the Father knows. When I wrestle with anxiety and depression and struggle in my inner man, I struggle in the presence of Jesus, with Jesus, with access to his power and strength and goodness and mercy. And, and follow, I can't like articulate enough this theme in the New Testament. Abide in me and I in you. You're the branch and I'm the vine. Meaning, draw your nutrients from me. Let me be your strength. Always live aware of our connectedness. And so when some come to the church and say, no, you need to jump through some more hoops. You need to, you need to you're, you're really bad at religion. You're not good at doing the works. Paul says, no, you're seated. You don't, we don't stand in the courtroom of God. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. All has been done. And Paul says, um, when they tell you that you need to eat different food, or you need to, you need to make sure that you, you celebrate the right festivals on the right days, or when they tell you that, that you can't get married, or that you can't have sexual intercourse with your spouse, when they tell you that you're not fasting enough, you tell them, my life is hidden with Christ in God. My life is totally hidden with Christ and God, you know nothing of my spirituality. You can't grade me. That's such a dangerous little thing that we do in the church. We try to grade each other's spirituality. You know nothing of my intimacy with God. It's hidden. And then Paul says, so when they say that to you, and when you feel lack, when you feel like you're lacking fullness, learn to seek the things that are above. And let your heart go after God and intimacy and then set your mind on the things that are above. So, so Sinclair Ferguson would also say this. Um, he said every time he did an interview, he was a, a, a Presbyterian pastor. He said every time he interviewed a new young person, he would say, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? And he said that's the most telling question you could ask an individual. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? When you have no toddlers pulling your pants saying, feed me. Or your boss isn't driving the whip saying, do more. Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? And, and that's what Paul's poking at here. He's saying, when you experience lack, learn to allow your heart and your mind to go to God in the moments of silence. As you do your work, I told you before that when I was in college, I worked at Publix frying the chicken, and I looked dang good in a hairnet and an apron, and... The apron covered my Mr. Potato Head shape very nicely. And um, I learned in that time to commune with God as my hands were busy. And that was probably largely from reading, oh, um, uh, lost the name of that book. I'll catch that for you later. Um, Intimacy with God. What was that book called? Practicing His Presence. Thank you, Lord. I keep wanting to say Father Brown, but that was a G.K. Chesterton book. What was his name? Do you remember? No, that wasn't Oswald Chambers. Anyways, email me. I'll get you that book. 
Um, but it is practicing the presence by where Seth and Anita. Um, Brother Lawrence, thank you, Lord. Brother Lawrence was his name. He's an old monk. You should get that one. That's an old book that you should read. Practicing the Presence by Brother Lawrence, um, a, who was essentially a dishwasher in a, in, a, um, uh, in a kind of monastery. And so he wasn't a, a high spiritual man. No one, came, no one thought of him as the best preacher or teacher. But he wrote a book um, called Practicing the Presence. As he washed dishes, he learned to commune with the Spirit, to let his mind catch hold of the spiritual reality which is I am in God's presence now I have access to God's presence now when someone stands before me and needs prayer I have perfect communion with the Holy Spirit now it's one of the reasons we're not cessationists because some reason cessationists bite into this thing of um, God never speaks again and we believe that the revelation of scripture the canon is closed so no one who prophesies or speaks on behalf of the Lord adds to scripture or has that level of authority but we do believe that you have perfect communion with god as you learn to grow in it and so when someone comes to me and say says i need prayer and then i feel in my spirit for some reason that they're struggling with an issue with their spouse and i just blurt it out well maybe are you struggling with your spouse it's largely because i have perfect communion with the spirit of course i hear him of course he speaks to me of course he talks with me doesn't mean i'm a prophet just means that I know the know the voice of God. I'm learning to know the voice of God. And that is a direct expression of union, which is a basic theological construct. Learning to live in union. So to reiterate, you are buried with him, raised with him, you have ascended with him, you've sat down at the right hand of God with him, where now you exist in your life, your real life, your real life that I don't see, is hidden with Christ in God, where you talk with Him and walk with Him and commune with Him. But one day, Christ is going to get up off of that throne. And one day, He's going to return and redeem the earth. And on that day, when He gets up, we come with Him. Because He considers Himself incomplete without us. He's not incomplete. He's perfectly whole. But like a father who says, I just like my kids around, He will not come without me. In the same way, I, I've thought about this this week, in the same way when Moses says to the Lord, you remember they're getting ready to go the, into the promised land, and, and the Lord says, I'll just send an angel before you. God's frustrated. I'll just send an angel before you. Um, go ahead up, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says to the Father, if you don't go, I don't go. I'm not going anywhere without you. In that same way, it's as if Jesus responds, he turns that on us now and says, if you don't go, I don't go. I go nowhere without my bride. I won't move without her. What do you lack? Not a dang thing. You only need to learn to dig deeper into what you possess now. Let your faith rise up. I'm sure I have a nicely written conclusion in this packet of notes here. But if you would, stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Where were you when I needed a book reference? Brother Lawrence, he says. <laughs> Y'all want to go ahead and get in place, altar team?
to be the kind of of modern Western anti supernatural Christians, the kind of Christians that for some reason believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, but then believe that nothing else ever happens again until he returns. It's really strange to believe in a crazy miracle that Christ got up from the grave and then not believe that God continues to move, to speak. And so what I what how I'd like to end today is I'd like to take two minutes. I want to open the altars. And if if you are wrestling in your heart, if you say, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not in major sin or I'm not in rebellion. I just I just feel a little dry. I'm just not sure that I've learned to fully access my union with God. I just haven't quite sensed his presence lately. I want to open up the altars for the next couple minutes. We want to pray for you. Scripture talks about laying hands on you. We want to ask the Holy Spirit to just fall on this place, to just fall on every life, every life that's willing to come receive prayer this morning. We're going to believe that you have a greater revelation, a greater experience of your union with Christ in God today, and that that would rise up as a well in your soul so that you would never again say, I lack. So if, if that's you, I want you to come. If you just, I just want to pray that the Spirit would fall upon me. I want you to come now. Don't hesitate. Just go ahead and come. Come on, if your prayer life feels a little dry, just come. If your spiritual life feels a little tired, go ahead and come. Name is Larkhan.